I want to begin by asking you a very important question. If your heart stopped beating in the next couple of minutes, are you at peace with Almighty God? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you'd spend eternity if you died just a moment or two from now? That's a powerful question, isn't it? I borrowed the wording of that question from a sermon that I was watching on the internet by a very well-known preacher named Joel, but not the Joel you guys know around here, Joel Osteen. It was uh, at the near the end of one of his lessons, it was sort of what they would call the altar call, but it was kind of at the end where they're going to drive to the conclusion. And that was the question he used to sort of begin this part of the, his uh, sermon. Now, you may or may not be familiar with uh, Joel. Uh, he preaches on television some. His home congregation is called Lakewood Church. It's in Houston, Texas. They have 43,000 people each week who attend at Lakewood Church. Over the course of a week, his sermons that go out over the uh, television and around the world are seen by 7 million people. So when he speaks, you could literally say millions of ears are listening to what he says. So what does he say in response to this question? Are you sure right now, if you died in the next few minutes, are you at peace with God? Do you know where you would go if you died? Well, let me just go ahead and tell you how he proceeds from there. I've edited out some of the verbiage just to kind of get it down to a shorter message. But this is taken uh, from this same lesson I was watching. He's, let me just go back. He says, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you'd spend eternity if you died just a moment or two from now? If not, I'd like to pray with you. I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm here to help you find a new beginning. And I know that that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith and stand right where you are. And we're going to pray together. The good news is God's not mad at you. The price has already been paid. Your sins have already been forgiven. All you've got to do is accept the free gift of Christ's salvation. Well, you say, Joel, I can't... I can't stand in front of all those people. That's embarrassing. But listen to what Jesus said. If you won't be ashamed of me before men, then I won't be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. I'm going to give you an opportunity to show God you're not ashamed of Him. I'm going to ask you, if you're not at peace with the Lord, would you be bold and just stand right where you are, and we're going to pray together. Say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Come into my heart. Wash me in your blood. I make you my Lord and Savior. Amen. The moment you stood up, God washed away all your sins, all your mistakes, all your failures. He will not remember them anymore. So that was the way he concluded his call for those to respond to the plan of salvation, to respond to the gospel, to be saved. If you weren't at peace with God, if you knew that you were going to die, if you died the next minute, you would go to hell if you would stand right where you are and, and repeat this prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart, accept Him as your personal Lord and Savior, the moment you stood up and begun that, God washed all your sins away. You're forgiven. And basically, if you, the rest of the time, He just says, we hope you'll come back and, and visit with us some more and become part of our church. And that's kind of how He wraps up His, his lesson. Now, all over America and around the world, similar messages are preached Every week by lots of preachers. These are just some uh, televangelists. I'm not sure what exactly all of these guys teaches on salvation. Some 
uh, emphasize one thing or another. Some people would emphasize repentance. Some would emphasize prayers. We've already seen a confession. Some people would say, you really don't do anything. That the Holy Spirit comes in a, in a way that is completely independent of your choice and has a direct operation on you. And they would emphasize some kind of sensation that you might have had. Some uh, experience that would tell you that now you are saved. But what is absolutely fascinating to me is that of all the things that they say, what you don't hear are things like this. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. You don't hear anybody saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't hear anybody saying, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. You don't hear those things. Now, it's possible that they would get around to baptism at some point. I suppose if you stayed long enough and came back and all of that, they might. I think most places do get around to baptism some sooner or later. But if you were to have them explain to you what this is all about, in no way or form would it be connected to your salvation. It wouldn't have anything to do with forgiveness of sins or becoming a disciple or becoming a Christian. It is a step that you would take after the fact to sort of confirm or to display in a public way what already happened to you maybe that day or maybe a month ago. But they completely separate baptism from the plan of salvation. And this is one of the things, as Greg's already said, that really sets apart churches of Christ. We, you could go into just about any building around the world that, that, is a, uh, that is a church of Christ in this sense. Now, you know, obviously, I can't speak for all of them. But in the, in the ones that I've known, you're going to hear a plan of salvation that in some ways is similar to what Joel Osteen said. We're going to say, as he did, that Jesus paid the price for your sins. We're going to say, as he did, that you're, if you're not a Christian, you're lost. You need to believe. You need to repent. You need to be in a personal relationship with Jesus. All those things are true. But we're going to say that happens when you hear the gospel, you believe what you've heard, you repent of your sins, you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, you're baptized to have your sins washed away, and you begin a new life living in Him. Why is our plan different? If I can say it that way. Why doesn't, why doesn't everybody say the same thing? Why isn't every preacher around the world preaching the same message? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Where do we get our plan? Where is it, why do we say those things? Where does it come from? And why isn't everybody saying the same thing? You know, when you think about the question, what must I do to be saved? Is there a more fundamental thing that we could ask? I suppose, is there a God is a more fundamental question. And if you haven't yet crossed that bridge, then yet that would have to be the first thing somebody would have to decide if they believe in God or not. If you don't believe in God, uh, you got to start there. But once somebody understands there's a God, really, what must I do to be saved is about the most basic question we could ask. And you have, uh, you know, I noticed some of the topics that were addressed this week in the meeting. And some of those, you know, people disagree on this or that about it. But isn't it amazing that we can't agree on what must somebody do to be saved? So you would think, well, the answer must be very hard to find. There's so much confusion. It must be very difficult. So it must be buried deep within some very, um, you know, deep scripture that, that takes a very, an expert, really. Uh, somebody who's really studied, you know, somewhere and knows all about the Bible 
to figure this out. It must be very hard because so many people, there's such a confusion of voices in, out there on what somebody has to do to be saved. It can't be very clear, right? But in fact, it is amazingly clear on what we have to do to respond to the Lord's salvation that He paid for on the cross. Tonight, what I want to do to establish this is just simply look at the Great Commission as it is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As we look at each of these, we'll see the wording is a little bit differently, but you'll see as we go that they fit together very well. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In Matthew 28, these are, you could say the Great Commission are, is Jesus' last words. It's almost the very last words He spoke on earth. When we get to chapter 28, you'll notice you're at the end, right? So Jesus has already been born. He's already spent three years or so in His public ministry. He has already died for the sins of the world. He's already been raised. And He is just about to leave earth and go to be with His Father. And now He's summing up what He wants His apostles to do. Now these are men that He handpicked. And for three years or so, had them on an intensive training program to go and be His witnesses in all the earth and to, to, to spread the salvation that He purchased with His blood. And so now, right before He leaves, in just a sentence or two, He is going to sum up what He wants them to go do. That's what we call the Great Commission. It's not called that in the Scriptures, but that's the name that man has given to it. It is this kernel or this just boiled down essence of the plan or the mission that He's sending them out into the world to go spread this salvation to the world. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 28, and let's look at verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus begins with all authority belongs to Him. We won't dwell on that tonight. But with this authority, He sends them on their way. Go make disciples. The first time I was reading through this, I thought to myself, I see four uh, commands here. Go make disciples, uh, baptizing and teaching. But actually, if you look at it, it's go make disciples, baptizing and teaching. And so I called some friends of mine who know more about the original languages than I do to confirm this. And the main verb in this sentence is make disciples. And the going and baptizing and teaching support that. In other words, you go make disciples is what he said. You go replicate. Make more. you got 11 here. Go out and make a whole bunch of disciples. And those disciples are going to make more disciples. And they're going to make more disciples. And here we are, 2012, trying to make more disciples. Right? How are we going to do that? Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all I've commanded. Clearly, baptism is essential to making disciples. Now let's go to Mark's account. Mark chapter 16. The very last pages of the book of Mark. You'll notice that these are worded a little differently, as often is the case in the Synoptic Gospels. Picking up on different details. Verses 15 and 16. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, or every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Sounds a little differently than Matthew's, but really, if you look at it, it's very much the same. He says, Go and 
proclaim the gospel. Matthew's account said, go make disciples. How are we going to make disciples? We're going to proclaim the gospel. So the way you're going to go make disciples is to go preach this message. It please God through the foolishness of preaching. Save men. You go make disciples by preaching this message. Now, what are they going to do? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And that fits very well with go make disciples. Obviously, the people who believe are the ones who are going to respond. What are you going to do when they believe? Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things I've commanded. So these two really fit together very well. Go preach the gospel to everybody. Whoever believes that gospel and is baptized will be saved. Whoever doesn't believe will be condemned. If they reject you, of course, they're not going to be saved. That's very clear. Let's go to Luke's account in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 47. Jesus is explaining uh, the scriptures to them here. Perhaps a little bit of a different part of the same conversation. The wording's a little differently. But we'll begin in verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You notice he doesn't say baptism. But he emphasizes two other things that are very important. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Those are also inherent in the other accounts. When Matthew says, go make disciples, so you come across somebody, he's not a disciple now. You're going to do what? According to Mark, you're going to teach him the gospel. If he believes it and he's baptized, you're going to teach him to deserve all things I've commanded you. That's going to require repentance. He's going to now change and start following Christ. That is the essence of repentance. Turn away from his old way of life. And begin a new way of life. So you're going to go teach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which is inherent in Mark's account when he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from their sins. Saved to go be with God. So this forgiveness of sins is specifically mentioned here. Uh, it's, it's inherent in the other accounts. Now, with those three in mind, let's see if we can just piece this all together. So you're, just to put yourself there in the place of the apostles. You've heard these statements from Jesus. He's about to leave. And he's giving you a job to do. And your job is to go into the world and preach the gospel to everybody. Whoever believes that gospel and repents is going to be saved. When they're baptized, they're going to be saved. Whoever repents, hears, believes, repents, is going to be baptized, have their sins forgiven, and then you're going to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And isn't that exactly what you hear week after week, sermon after sermon, if, if you've uh, attended at a church of Christ? That's the message that we preach. That's what I close every sermon with. Something very similar to those words. Now, you find the same type of instruction elsewhere in the New Testament as well. But this same basic idea that you go teach the gospel, those who believe it, who repent of their sins, who are baptized, will be forgiven of their sins, they will be saved, and now you begin teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. That is what we say. Now, given the fact that there's other people who say other things, how can we test ourselves to see if I've got it right? How, how might I know if I've understood this correctly? We're reading that, and we're saying, that makes sense to me, that makes sense to you, but how do we know? Maybe we've misunderstood it, maybe there's some other key thing. Well, here's one test. If we've understood this correctly, wouldn't it be fair that we should be able to go to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and we should be able to find these same men, the apostles, now going and doing what Jesus told them to do? 
And if we find them teaching people and the ones who believe and repent are baptized and then they become Christians, then we must know we're on the right path, right? That's a fair test of our understanding of what they were told to do. And so I thought about having lots of examples of this because there's quite a few we could look at. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at one. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 to see the plan in action. Acts chapter 2, we'll just go with the very first gospel sermon ever preached. Now, I always feel bad. Peter sermon, we, we skip over it and get right to the punchline. And we do that all the time, and I'm going to do it again tonight. And I hate that, because it's a good sermon, but it would just take a long time to go through the whole thing and develop it, or it would take more time than we've got. So, in a nutshell, what Peter says is, they're wondering where all this power come from. They're, they're speaking in tongues. He said, Jesus Christ, a man attested to you by God with signs and wonders. He was here. God did all kinds of miracles through him. You killed him, but God raised him up. And God ascended, he's raised up, now he's seated right beside God. And he's the one pouring out what you're seeing in here. That gets us to verse 36. And then he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. So they've now been convicted, they've been charged with this sin. Many of them believed what they were told. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. They believed that they had killed him. They believed that they were lost. How do I know they believed all these things? Because of their reaction. Look at what they say in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That tells you they believed. If they didn't believe it, it wouldn't bother them at all. They're only cut to the heart because they believed. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Now they want to know, what am I going to do? What is, how should I respond? Now they believe. Here's the thing. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They know they're in sin. To answer uh, Joel Osteen's question, they're not at peace with God. So if Peter had interjected that question and said, how many of you feel right now that if you died, you're going to you're at peace with God? Nobody was, because they were all guilty of killing the Son of God. And they want to know, what do we do? So what is the clear instruction that is given, of course, in verse 38, beginning? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So they had already heard and believed, and now they're told they need to repent and be baptized. Peter is here doing exactly what his Lord and Master told him to do days before. You go out there and teach people, and the ones that believe and repent, you baptize them, and then they'll be saved. Peter's telling that same message to them. Now, they still have to respond. Peter actually has more to his sermon. It says in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, we know, and we say all the time, you can't save yourself. What does Peter mean by save yourself? What he means is you've got the balls in your court now. I've done what I could do. So as the apostle, he had preached the message. He had done exactly what his Lord had told him to go do. You go declare, proclaim the gospel. He's told them, now they've heard it, they've got to decide. Are they going to respond to this or not? And we see the ones that responded in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Mission accomplished for that moment. Disciples have been made. Remember what Jesus said? Go into all the world and make disciples. 
they've now got 3,000 more. How'd that happen? The gospel's doing its thing. So now there's 3,000 more disciples. It wouldn't be long before there'd be thousands more disciples and thousands more. And then it wouldn't be long before when persecution came, those went everywhere preaching the word and they make more and more disciples. Taking this same basic message and it is the same message that we're going to preach tonight. It's the same message that I pray will be preached in this congregation and pulpits all around the world till the Lord comes back. So the question is, if it's just that easy, and I don't mean to be disrespectful when I say that, but it seems clear to me, why isn't everybody saying the same thing? I mean, you could sort of say, well, maybe we can disagree about something else. But how do we not agree on this? Let's talk about that for a moment. First, I want to tell you about somebody that I admire a whole lot. And that's Kirk Cameron. And I've already, I forgot again. Everybody laughed at me last time. I forgot which TV show he was on. He was on some TV show. And all the ladies knew it because they had a crush on him, I think, when they were, uh, you know, when they were, when we were younger. But anyway, he was a TV star. This guy, the younger one over there. And he's very unusual in that he's one of the very few people in Hollywood or entertainment or whatever, however you want to say it, who has now devoted his life to telling people about Jesus. And he is very fired up about this. And so uh, he's been part of making those movies uh, Fireproof, and I think maybe a couple of others that he's somehow involved with. He was in Fireproof, and I think he's done some others. And his goal is to bring people to the Lord. So this other guy is named Ray Comfort. And Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort have this website called Way of the Master, and they also have some material on there. Well, if you go to this website, and I actually encourage you to... Uh, Christians here who know the truth, if you go to the website, what you can find on there is there's a page where there's videos where you can watch them witnessing. And what they do is Kirk Cameron goes out to like a pier somewhere and just talks to complete strangers, convicts them that they're guilty of sin and that they need Jesus. In one video, he's talking to gang members. I mean, one guy doesn't have his shirt on. They're just these tough guys. Um, you know, clearly just, I mean, whatever you picture in your mind, and he's talking to them about, hey, you think, he, he always starts with, you feel like you're a good, you're a good person? And everybody says yes. And then he starts asking them, have you ever done this? Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted after someone? Do you know what the Bible, the Bible says that all liars are going to go to hell? So now do you feel like, you know, if you were to stand before God, how would you, what would he say about you? Would you? So he, he takes them through this. Uh, Ray has a video where he's talking to a young lady sitting beside him on an airplane. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, they're doing what we need to be doing. And it'll humble you. And if, if you're like me, it'll shame you because you think, here's people that are very gung-ho and I need to be more like that. In fact, if you would, let's just, just pause for a moment in this train of thought and look at the very last page of your New Testament. Revelation 22. I'm going to come back to this in just a second, but I want to make this point. The topic for tonight is the plan of salvation that the, that she teaches is the way it was worded, talking about the church of Christ. The plan of salvation the church of Christ teaches. Revelation 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. You know who the bride is? That's me and you, isn't it? It's the church. It's the church that's teaching this plan of salvation. The church that's saying, Come. The church that's inviting people to come. It's not, when we talk about what plan of salvation the church teaches, I hope we don't picture in our minds just what's done in the pulpit or just what's done by certain people, but it is the plan of salvation that we as a people are sharing with the world. Now let's go back to our thought process here. So you've got Kirk Cameron and you've got Ray Comfort and they're telling people what to do 
to be saved, but like so many others, he gets so far and doesn't finish the plan. He does, you won't find on this whole website, you have a very hard time finding the word baptism on any of the videos or anything. I'll give an example of one of the, uh, in one of the videos he talks to a young man who admits that he's lied and he's stolen things in the past and he's lusted, um, or I think he said lied and steal. And Kirk says, the Bible says all liars will go to hell. And if God gives you what you deserve, you're in big trouble. And he agrees to this. And then he tells him the good news. And now, quoting from him, he says, God demonstrated his love for you in that while you broke the law, he paid your fine by sending Jesus to take your punishment for you. And he says that if you'll repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you, that he will forgive you of your sin and grant you eternal life. Now, you notice right there is a shift, right? Repent and trust in Jesus. And I did find that phrase several times in there, talking. And so I, I did a search in four different translations. There's no trust in Jesus. Now, the concept is there. I don't deny that. But the plan does not read that way. Repent and trust in Jesus is not what the, the, the gospel preachers say. But that's what I said. If you repent and trust in Jesus, then he goes on to say, uh, the guy obviously kind of accepts this. I mean, he's very moved by what Kirk's saying to him. So he says, he says, so what you need to do before you go to sleep tonight, man, is get right with God. Just say, I'm, God, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And this day I repent of my sin. It means I turn my back on sin and I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then read your Bible every day and obey what you read and God will never let you down. So he's convicted him of sin. The guy, I mean, he's got just a total stranger there waiting to hear what he's supposed to do. And he says, you go home tonight and you pray to God. And you say, God, I'm sorry. And I accept Jesus as my Savior. And then you get up and you read your Bible and you do what it says. And that's the plan. But no mention of the word baptism. There's no water in the plan. So I, I was searching on the website and I was wondering, surely they say something. So if they have a page that is a hundred questions about the Scriptures. A hundred biblical questions. One of them is, does the... Uh, is water baptism required for remission of sin? Oh, that's interesting. Let's see what they say. Here's their response. Sorry, it's a little wordy. But I just wanted you to see it for yourself. Here's what they say about it. While we should preach that all men are commanded to repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38, adding any other requirement to salvation by grace becomes works in disguise. Even though numerous scriptures speak of the importance of water baptism, Adding anything to the work of the cross demeans the sacrifice of the Savior. It implies that His finished work wasn't enough. But the Bible makes clear that we are saved by grace and grace alone in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Baptism is simply a step of obedience to the Lord following our repentance and confession of sin. Our obedience, water, baptism, prayer, good works, fellowship, witnessing, etc. issues from our faith in Christ. Salvation is not what we do, but who we have. He that has the Son has life in 1 John, see Acts 2.38 and footnotes. This comes from a study Bible that they've, um, I guess they put out, and they've, they've taken these answers from their notes in their study Bible. So this is, I think, their comments perhaps on Acts 2.38. So their, their answer is that, actually, I don't know. Do you follow the logic? It's a little tough. But their answer is that baptism takes away from what Jesus did on the cross. Now, would it be fair to say, says who? I mean, I think I, that's what I want to say, right? I mean, who says that baptism takes away from the work of the cross? They say it does. They say if you 
If you say somebody has to be baptized, you're taking away, you're saying Jesus didn't do enough. But here's where I don't know that, again, I don't follow the logic because, and I don't say that disrespectfully at all, I really, truly would love to ask. They say you have to repent and confess. I don't understand how that's not taken away. They're, in their plan, if you know you're lost and you want to accept the salvation, you have to repent and confess and say a prayer. But if you say, well, you've got to be baptized, then you're adding to it somehow and it's salvation by works, even though those other things in their minds are not salvation by works. I don't understand it. But the point is, they've got Paul completely wiping out basically what we just read that Jesus said. Now, does, does Paul sort of overwrite the plan that Jesus gave? Let's go look at where Paul himself was saved in Acts chapter 22. Oh, first of all, sorry. Let's go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and see what Paul said. Then we'll go look at where Paul was saved. Ephesians chapter 2. This is the passage where they say, Paul says, you don't, all you have to do is there has to be grace and there's nothing else required. They get that from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let's read what that says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. By their understanding of this passage, it leaves no room for baptism and salvation. But let's think about that for a moment. What is Paul saying here? As I understand it, what Paul's saying is that there's nothing you can do in the way of good works to save yourself. You, in other words, let's say you decide you're lost. You're convicted of sin. I know I'm guilty of sin. I've done horrible things. And I need to be saved. Now, give me a long list of things I've got to go do. And if I do them all, I've earned my salvation. Paul says, no, no, no. You, it's not about what you've done. You can't earn it. It's a free gift from God. You're saved by grace through faith. And perhaps we need to say that a little more often. I don't know. Are we all comfortable with the concept that you're saved by grace through faith? That's a true statement. That's a fact. It's the only way anybody's ever been saved. is by God's grace through faith. But does that mean there is no response? It's, it, does this say that if you're saved by grace through faith, there's nothing you have to do to respond to that that free gift to receive it? Now let's go back and look at how Paul himself was saved in Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, I'm sure that not a day went by that Paul ever forgot the day he heard these words. As he was dead set on persecuting Christians, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and was told to go into the town and he would hear what he was supposed to do. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias says to him, Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's what Paul did. And we don't have Paul in Ephesians 2 undoing or taking away baptism. In fact, let's go read what Paul says about baptism in Romans chapter 6. These passages are probably very familiar to us, but it's good to be reminded Paul himself, writing about baptism in Romans chapter 6, says, beginning verse 3, Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I was talking to a uh, preacher the other day, Frank Walton. Some of you may or may, may know him. And he said he's got a sermon called Baptism for Christians. And uh, what he means by that is that a lot, he said a lot of the teaching in the New Testament about baptism was written to Christians, and it was to remind them about their baptism, and to remind, and what Paul's doing here, he's talking to Christians, and he's reminding them 
about the time that they were baptized and when they were baptized and what that means in their life and how they're supposed to be living now. So notice he says in verse 3, Do you not know all of us who have been baptized? That's, that's us. Into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So let's ask Paul the question. Is baptism essential to salvation? What he says here is that baptism is the moment when the old man of sin is buried and a new person comes up to start a new life. That sounds essential, doesn't it? It sounds like the turning point in making a disciple. Somebody goes from being not a disciple to a disciple when they bury the old man and they raise up to walk a new life. Far from taking away from the cross, baptism unites us with Jesus' death. It doesn't take away from Jesus' blood. It connects us with Jesus' blood. It is that, it is that moment when we are buried with Him and raised up to begin a new life. So we cannot, however we understand Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we can't just throw out every passage as they acknowledge. There's lots of them that emphasize the significance of baptism. And so we can't interpret one passage in a way to just nullify all these other passages that are very clear and easy uh, for us to understand, including Paul's own writings on it here. In conclusion, I want to go back to where we started with the question that we began with uh, that I borrowed from Joel Osteen. Here's the question. I guess it's actually two questions. If your heart stopped beating in the next couple of minutes, are you at peace with Almighty God? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you would spend eternity if you died just a moment or two from now? I appreciate that question. I think it's a good question. It's worded well. It's one that every person here, that we all need to ask ourselves, am I ready to stand before God if this was it? If we leave here and something happens and this is the night that I meet my maker, if he returns tonight and we're all instantly in just a moment united with him, are you ready to stand before him? The good news is Jesus came so that we can all be prepared. He died to pay the price for our sins. He's been raised and he's seated in heaven and he's going to come back and he's going to bring us with him. How can I be his disciple and go to be with him? Whoever believes this plan of salvation. Whoever believes Jesus is the Son of God, repents of their sins, and is baptized, will be saved. And of course, as we read Matthew, that begins your walk with Him. You've got to learn how to observe all that He's commanded. If there's someone here tonight who has not done that, it's just that simple. And I'm so thankful that it's been revealed to us. And I'm thankful we have this plan of salvation. And I'm so blessed to stand before you and proclaim it to you tonight. And I pray that all of us will leave here and go proclaim this gospel in whatever way that you have, whatever opportunities, whatever abilities you have, that we, the bride, would go tell others to come join in what we have. If there's some way that we can help you tonight, make your life right with God, please let us know as we stand and sing. It's